Our Lord and our Father, in light of the reality of the fallenness of man, how amazing that we get to sing such songs of tenderness. Indeed, that's unique to Christianity, to have such songs of praise and tenderness and love to our God, that we love to sing of you. And even in the midst of what we know is the end of this present world, even as Israel knew that destruction would come, we know that that will come to our nation. Indeed, we see elements of that even now, the end breaking of it. And yet, we can sing. We can sing songs of praise. We can sing songs of worship. Because whatever may come, it will also go under your sovereign hand. And is not the end. The end for believers is heaven, is salvation. And so keep our hearts encouraged in these wonderful truths of your word. Even now as we prepare for this table, that is by your own design a reminder of the Lord's death until you return. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us, sanctify us by your word, and maybe in some cases bring about salvation. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. If you would, open your Bibles up to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, as we finish up this section that we began a few weeks ago, first by looking at a theology of wealth. He is focusing here on money, particularly, and our relationship to money and to this world, fitting within the larger theme of Ecclesiastes about the emptiness of this world when it's taken on its own terms and without reference to your love for God. And so that began for us in chapter 5, verse 10, looking at the theology of wealth. And then we looked at the issue of disordered affections. And this morning we come and we look again at the futility of life, but not merely the futility of life, but the futility of life as a means of causing us to seek him who is life. Now, it's interesting, one has said, speaking of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, that Ecclesiastes 6 is one of the Bible's darkest chapters. It's one of the Bible's darkest chapters. And there's an element of truth in that if it's seen by itself, as would be much of the book of Ecclesiastes, because the very point is to show the the darkness, the emptiness, and the futility of a life without God, of creation under the conditions of sin. However, when put into the context of the whole of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament and the New Covenant particularly, it's not difficult to see why such a dismal view of humanity is so continually paraded before our eyes in the book of Ecclesiastes, and for that matter, in other passages such as we read this morning out of Jeremiah. It is because in facing the reality of a world under sin... Facing the reality of a world under sin of which we have not merely sin outside of us but within us, we can see that recognizing that is what God uses to lead us to seek life, to seek hope. There's a hopelessness in this world, but there's a hope in Him and in His promises. When God causes us then to feel the reality and the consequences of sin outside of us and within us, it should lead us to seek salvation. He is the one who declares to us from heaven, turn to me all of the ends of the earth and be saved. Well, 
Saved from what? We already answered that question a few weeks ago, at least in part. Saved from the divine wrath of God. Saved from the consequences of our sin. Saved unto life. To be reconciled to God. So the misery of this life should lead us when we feel it, when we're not blind to it, ignoring it, and suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, should lead us always back to the one in whom there is grace. So in other words, the emptiness of this world should drive us to God. Rightly received and responded to the despondency and the darkness of Ecclesiastes 6 with the futility of this world should lead us to the fount of grace and blessing. And this is not something that's uh, estranged to even Solomon himself who's writing this. He knew well the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his own father David. And for us, even more so, we have the revelation of Christ, the fulfillment of the new covenant and the glorious revelation of God in a wonderful new way in his triune glory and in the fullness of understanding his work of grace. So hopelessness and ultimate judgment is the real possibility to ignore this covenant promise of God, but it never has to be the last word. It never has to be the last word. So even in those that we're confronted with in Ecclesiastes and our own lives, it never has to be the last word. If it is the last word, it is only because someone rejects grace. Someone rejects forgiveness. And hope is always offered by God. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, really under two, just two uh, broad headings. And of course these will be up there. One is this. In verses 1 through 6, that God withholds man's joy to lead him to the fountain of joy. God withholds man's joy to lead him to the fountain of joy. And number 2, verses 7 through 12, that God confines man to futility to lead him to eternity. So God confines man to futility in order to lead him to eternity. So read with me, if you will, the Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and then we'll consider this as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. Some of you have heavy among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. A man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better is the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things... Do not all go to the same one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool, and what advantage does the poor man have? No, we looked at that. They are given, and then one dies. So let's look at the first point, however. God withhold man's joy to lead him to fountain of joy. Now he begins right in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. There is an evil. The word there means just exactly that. It's translated different ways throughout the Old Testament of, of trouble, 
of bad things, of evil, but the idea here is that there is an evil, there is a moral evil. He's taking an immoral evaluation of the circumstances he's going to address. And it's evil from a biblical worldview, particularly because it is a grievous illustration of the ruin that sin has brought into God's good creation. It's evil. It's not as God intended. It's not morally good. It's not holy. It's not righteous. We as God's image bearers were made to experience God's goodness, not his wrath. That's what sin brought. We weren't made to experience wrath. We were made to experience nearness, blessing, fellowship, goodness, flourishing, all of those things. But that is not the reality that we are confronted with, again, in Scripture. Matter of fact, in in other places too, but related to this theme, he uses this idea of the evil that we experience under the sun in a variety of ways. In 2.21, he says there's an evil of losing hard-earned wealth only to the foolish who will follow, to build your whole life, use your whole life to amass wealth and accomplishments and honor, only to die and know that it could go to a fool and it's all lost. That's an evil. It's a part of the fall. He said there's an evil in verse 12 of chapter 5 of the one who loves wealth so much that he just hoards riches. He hoards and he hoards and he hoards and yet he isn't even able to sleep at night. That's evil. He says in verse 15 of chapter 5, there's an evil of holding on to what only can be temporary because we're going to die and we're going to leave with nothing just as we came into the world with nothing. That's an evil. In chapter 10, verse 5, he's going to say there's an evil of those who are foolish gaining power and ruling over a land and a people. In other words, this is a creation that knows the reality of evil evil of sin and it's not an isolated evil look at what he says there is an evil which i've seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men some of you have translations that say heavy you could take it either way here this term the idea of heavy would just mean that's a burden that man builds it's a it's a burdensome situation it's a heavy situation a weight that falls on the soul of man to experience this kind of futility There is the idea of prevalence as well, which then would be to say that it's not a situation that is limited to only a few. It's a part of being a member of the human race. It's what we all have to bear to some measure. And again, I mentioned this, but let's be clear because this is... This is really a major theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is this this living in light of creation and the fall. This living in light of creation and fall. That is, things are not as they should be. Sin, death, sorrow, vanity are normal experiences for us from our vantage point. But they're not normal from the vantage point of creation. Sin is an intruder. Satan is a thief. He is a corrupter of what was originally made good. This is, in theological terms, this reality, original sin. Original sin. Now, some of you may hear that term, think that it refers to the first sin, Adam's sin, but that's, that's not what this doctrine is referring to. Original sin refers to the consequences of that sin. It refers to the guilt and inherent corruption that we now experience because of that sin. It is original in this sense, in that, as David said, in sin my mother conceived me, it is at the very beginning of our life and our existence a reality that we are under, namely a bearer of Adam's guilt and a bearer of Adam's corruption within our soul. That is original sin. This is an example of that truth. It is what Paul, just as a 
reference here says that one man's sin through one man's sin entered into the world, death spread to all men, for all have sinned. And so here is that world here in the eyes of Solomon. And he says it's evil. What is the evil here? What is the evil? Well, again, it's to live in a world where there's good things surrounding someone, but there's no ability to enjoy them. And so he, he gives two particular causes of this misery. And I'll mention them briefly. They're on the surface. One, in verse two, the evil is, is that one can possess good things, and yet God can and does take it away. It's, in other words, it's unstable. It's uncertain. So what does he say? A man, what is evil? One is a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from it for a foreigner enjoys them. This too is vanity and severe affliction. Riches, wealth and honor were a sign of great blessing in that time. So in our time as well. And here's a man who has all of those things, everything that we could say that the soul would desire, that inward part of men that experiences joy and pleasure and contentment. It should be found in these things and wealth and honor and riches, should it not? And yet, here is the one who has all of those things, in fact, given them by God, to him by God, and yet God just as quickly takes them away. This is striking. And not only does he take him away, take them away, but look at what he says at the end of verse 2, for a foreigner enjoys them. He basically takes them away, he says, and then before the eyes of the one who had possessed them, he lets another enjoy them, so that the one who lost them can only look on with vexation and darkness and sadness. And then here it is, that is the experience. He gives his things by his good providence, God does, and then he takes them away. And do not miss here, then, the sovereignty of God. He gives riches, he takes them away. He raises one up, and he brings one down. He rules over his creation. This is an example of God ruling over his creation here in judgment. It's not always in judgment, though. We don't know always God's purpose. If you remember the words of Job after he lost his family, after he lost his possessions, after he lost his well, sons as part of his family, his slaves and servants and so forth, what did he say? We sing about it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Right. The Lord gives and the takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, it was the Lord's to give and it was the Lord's to take away. Nothing is ours by possession and certainly nothing is ours by right. As if we have some right to these things. If we even have, as if we have some right even to enjoy them. But the context here would indicate that this is a man who lost these things. He doesn't say how he lost them, whether by war, whether by a bad investment, as he mentioned earlier in chapter 5. He doesn't say, but the point isn't that how. The point is that they were lost. And that God is the one who took them. And the implication here would be as well that this is a man who was unrighteous. That he had these good things from God, but he possessed them in an idolatrous way, in a covetous way, in a greedy way. He didn't possess them humbly. He did not possess them as gifts from God, but as his own possessions. And God, in those situations, for good purposes, takes them away. Let me give you one verse. You don't have to go there. This verse always stands out to me. It's been helpful many times in my own life and in counseling. 
But Psalm 39 says this. This is David, Solomon's father. He says in verse 6, Surely every man walks about Every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. But then he says this in verse 11. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. You chasten a man for iniquity. And how do you chasten a man for iniquity? He chastens a man for iniquity many times by taking them away. Interestingly, if we looked at the big scope, he also chastens sometimes by giving more. Wealth itself can be a judgment of God, a killer to the soul. But he does also chasten a man by taking those things away. Number two, what is another kind of evil? Is he takes away joy. He takes away joy. Verses 3 and 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, he does not even have a proper burial. In other words, a proper burial was a means of honor. He's saying he's, he goes in, in an ignoble way. Nobody really cares. It's be in some ways similar to a wealthy person who can die and nobody sheds tears because they lost the person. They want only their wealth. What a sad testimony. But he says here he does not even have proper burial. And then to say better miscarriage than he, verse 6. If the other man lives a thousand years twice, it's often pointed out twice as long as Methuselah, but he does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. In other words, you work, you attain, you're granted the good things of this world, but you never enjoy them. Because God has withheld the experience of their goodness from the soul because they are not received rightly. What a miserable existence. He says in verses 4 through 6, it's so miserable that it would have been better not to have been born. It's like it would have been better to be a miscarriage for it comes in futility, goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. In other words, it, it was never known. It never lived as a person before men to be known and to be loved and to experience the world. It just kind of goes out of this world. It never sees the sun. It never knows Anything implied, it is better off than he. It is better off. It would be better never to have been born. Why? Because then the child would be spared of the misery of a futile and a frustrating life. You know, this is not an uncommon longing of the one who is suffering. Job in chapter 3 spends a good portion of that chapter saying, Curse the day that I was born. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his loss, in the midst of his discouragements. He says, oh, that I wish I were, were never even born. He says in verse 3, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived. He says, verse 16, like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. That's what he was longing for. Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 20. We won't turn there. It's an expression of grief. And although this is, is not Solomon's point here, it isn't a far stretch to think that he might have in mind his brother who died as an infant, not as a stillborn, but very shortly after his birth. You remember David's first child with Bathsheba. Solomon is the second child with Bathsheba. That he died. He was taken as a judgment for David's sin. And he went to the Lord's presence. David said, I won't 
He won't return to me, but I'll go to him. Solomon might be thinking how much better it is for my brother who never had to enjoy to go through what I've had to spend my whole life to discover that at the end of all the pleasure of in, at the end of indulging all of my fantasies, indulging all of my desires, I'm left empty and with nothing and to realize I've wasted my life. It produced nothing. The kingdom is going to be torn away. All of the temple that I built is going to eventually end in ruins. All of the happiness that I thought I had is only going to end up in vanity and discouragement. He's, in a sense, it's not hard to think that he's thinking my brother had it better than I did. At least he went and escaped all of the realities of the sins of this world. But he's not really looking at this from the point of... Eternity. He's looking at this from the vantage point of this world, of this life. And so he says, do not all go to one place at the end of verse 6. And the logic here is very powerful. It's essentially this. Both the man who lives out fullness of days, even if we use by terms of hyperbole 2,000 years, he's going to die and the miscarriage is going to die. So in other words, death is unavoidable. You're not going to miss it. So it would be better just to avoid all the pain in between. That's the idea. It'd be better just to avoid all of it and to never have been born in the first place. Do not all go to one place. They all end up in the same place. The stillborn and the one who lives a long life. Now here's the point of getting to all this. The secularist or the the one who does not see this in the light of who God is rejects the counsel of God could respond to this and say, this is unfair. How is it right for God to give something and then take it away? How is it right for God to let man have all of the things right before his eyes, even in his own possession, that would bring happiness only to leave him in misery? What kind of God is that? The first response is to say this misses at least three key points from a biblical perspective. One is that the creator-creature reality. The first problem with that statement is rights. We have no rights. We have a responsibility to worship. We have the blessings of worship. We have promises of God's goodness and flourishing to our life. We have no right. We don't stand before God and claim anything as our own. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And so it misses the very fact that we owe everything to our creature. Secondly, it misses the reality of sin. If we want God to treat us on the basis of what's right and fair, then get ready for judgment. Get ready for his chastisement. Get ready for his discipline. Get ready for misery. If that's how we really want to come to God. So that kind of thinking misses who we are as a creature before the creator. It misses the reality of sin. But here's where I want to get to. It misses the big picture of how God uses those things to lead us to a greater joy. It misses the reality of how God uses these things to lead us to a greater joy. Listen to the way one put this. I thought this was good. It says, Koaleth is very far, the preacher, is very far from holding that man has rights which God ignores. It is rather that man needs which, has needs which God exposes. In other words, the loss exposes our need. Now, we haven't been treated unfairly. Some of these are of a kind that the temporal world cannot begin to meet since God has put eternity into man's mind. Chapter 3, verse 11. In other words... When we are made to feel, when God chastises a man by taking things away from us, when we are made to feel our weakness, the purpose is not that God wants us to wallow in misery, but to turn to him. The purpose of trials is to lead us to God. When we experience loss, when we experience difficulties, when we experience trials, here is the question that we ask ourselves. Is what I'm experiencing leading me to God? 
or is it leading me away from him? Is it making me more isolated within myself? Is it making me want to separate from other people? Is it making me want to turn to everything else to indulge whatever lust or desire I can to, to somehow alleviate the pain that I feel? Or does it lead me to the foot of the cross? Does it lead me to God? Does it make me pour over his word? Does it make me cry out to him in prayer? Does it make me realize that everything he took away was only ruinous to my soul anyway so that I could be led to him who is greater. That's the purpose of trials. And that's what the man here should see when, when he realizes that all the good things are not the source of joy. It should lead him to him who is the source of joy. Let me just, I'm going to just mention a couple of passages here and then get to the other point. But in the book of Amos, this is what jumped into my mind. The book of Amos chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple of passages. But Amos chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but... If you wanted to, that's where it is. In Amos chapter 4, God is declaring the judgment that he's going to bring. A common theme throughout the Old Testament, of course. It is this reminder to Israel that you have received blessing. You have received promises. You have received goodness. You have received faithfulness. I have been patient with you. I have been long-suffering with you. I have cared for you. I have upheld you, even though you have rejected me. But... There is time when all of that will come to an end. And he, and he uses this really amazing language to me. It's striking. It will be to you. He says in verse 6 of Amos chapter 4, he says, I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread, bread, bread in all of your places. In other words, I made you suffer once. Why? He says, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Why did he bring that? So that they would return to him. Realize that God is the one who supplies for us. Verse 7, Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest, and then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. In other words, showing that he was the one directing this. One part would be rained on while one part would be dried up. And so two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied yet. You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and with mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring, and your many, gar- your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees, olive trees. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel. Why did God send famine? Why did God let them be killed with the sword? Why did God let them suffer want? Why did God let the crops fail? Why did he do that? So that we, they would return. This is an example of us as well. I mean, God brings these hardships in our lives to cause us to return to the Lord. It exposes sin. When God takes something away and we're devastated, it shows the idolatry of our hearts, doesn't it? It shows that we love that thing too much. And so God takes it away. And that's not just stuff. It could be relationships. It could be stuff. It could be power, honor, wealth, whatever. The things of this world. And God will take those things away. Not in order to be cruel, but in order to lead us and show us those things had too large of a hold on our heart. 
that we were looking to find something in them that we were only supposed to find and are only supposed to find in God alone. And so when the situation is that we lack joy and we experience hardship, there is a real hardship. But the goal of that is that we would return to the Lord. There is joy that's possible, but it's a joy that attends only true repentance and faith. You know, if we, if we go through, how many times have you thought to yourself, I really want to learn this because I am tired of the discipline that the Lord brings my way. I've thought that, but I don't know about you, but I particularly can be very stubborn. And it doesn't ever bode well. <laughs> Never, ever, ever, not even one time has it ever boded well. That's why David could say in Psalm 32, don't be like the horse and the mule. In other words, stubborn. Be willingly follow the Lord. When he brings discipline into our life, willingly follow him. Quickly respond to what he brings in our life. Quickly be willing to confess sin that is exposed in our heart. Quickly be willing to yield our heart and acknowledge that something had too heavy of a grip on us. Heavier than it should have. And know that in the midst of our darkest place, even in the midst of our darkest realization that the promise of Christ has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is, though unique to the ministry of Messiah, that is the promise that God always held out to his people. If you return to me, you will flourish if you return to me, you will once again know joy. But if you're going to try to find it in this world, I'm going to just keep taking joy away from you. I'm going to just keep bringing all of your purposes to ruin. Notice secondly what he says here. God confines man into futility to lead him to eternity. Verse 7. All man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. All man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is is not satisfied. The endless cycle of working to care for this life only to realize that you satisfy yourself for one moment and then it goes away and you have to do it again. That's the, that's the daily grind, as it were. Hunger drives a man on and yet, guess what? After he's satisfied his hunger, he becomes hungry again. It says in Proverbs 16, 26, the worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. He's motivated because he needs to eat. It makes him make sacrifices. He needs to provide for his family. He needs to put food on the table. He needs to put food in his stomach and in the stomach of his children. But guess what? After he does that, the job isn't done. He's got to do it again tomorrow and do it again tomorrow and do it again the next week and all the days of his life. And so Solomon then wants to give a contrast here. It leads him to make a contrast. And he says, well, then what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? Contrast is what he said in verse 13 of chapter 2. He said there, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And that is true, as he's bringing out there in this way, is that if a person is wise, life can be much easier if a person is wise, they will receive wealth. They will have advantages, advantages in this world. They will live better and make better decisions in this world. That is true, but that's not the vantage point he's looking at here. He says, but at the end of the day, whether you're wise or foolish, nobody can escape this cycle. That you eat and you obtain only to need to obtain again and again and again and again. And in this way then... 
What advantage, in verse 8, does the wise man have over the fool? In terms of possessions and help in life, the wise person has a great advantage over the foolish. There's no virtue in being foolish. But in terms of breaking the cycle of spiritual and perpetual want, then there's no advantage. They're both in the same boat. And we get this exactly flip-flopped in our culture all the time. Do we not? We think that the external will bring us internal happiness. And again, this is over and over the theme. Only that when we gain things, it only exposes inward emptiness. In reality, it's just the opposite. It is the right internal relationship with God of trust and obedience and hope and contentment that allows us to enjoy His blessings. We're going to have Christmas coming up. Is that not what it's going to be like at Christmas for some? I've been wanting, I've been wanting... I finally get this thing. It's going to be great for a little while. And then where do the children's toys end up? In the closet, under the bed. And it's forgotten. And we go, well, those are children. And well, they're us, (laughs) aren't they? That's exactly what Solomon is talking about. They may do it with simpler things in a more naive way, but the principle is the same. It's just how we're wired. That's how sin is. And if we're looking for that happiness, it does bring a little bit of happiness, but not ultimately because... If we were looking for happiness in it, then we're looking in the wrong place. Look at what he says in verse 9. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. It's vanity. The key point is this. It is better to be content with what you have than always longing for something more. We know that principle. For once you gain it, you realize that in reality, the joy it promised was a shadow with no substance. It was a phantom. It was an illusion. The sin said it was going to bring me satisfaction and happiness, but in the end, it didn't. It only brought more pain. This thing said it was going to make me happy. This relationship was going to make me happy. This house was going to make me happy. This job was going to make me happy. This money was going to make me happy. This vacation was going to make me happy. And maybe it does for a little bit, but then it goes away. You can't go into marriage, just as a footnote to here, Thinking marriage is going to make you happy. Your spouse isn't going to make you happy. These things are not the source of your happiness. That has to come from something else. And then you'll be able to enjoy those things. Then you'll be able to enjoy the things that God gives you. Not in their improper place. Now that's Solomon's point is this. That it's better to be content with what you have rather than longing for something more. But there's a deeper point here that Jesus himself brings out. And it's in the same stream of this principle. And it is this. It's what he says in John 6, 27. You'll remember the scene in John chapter 6. He had just fed thousands. They wanted to come and make him king. He says, you know, you don't understand. And so he sends his disciples away. He disperses the crowd. He prays. And then he walks on the water at night. He goes to the other side of the sea. That was the whole scene where he meets the, the disciples, one of the scenes in the storm. And then he gets to the other side, and the crowds follow him. And he says... You're not following me for the right reasons. You're following me because you ate the loaves and were filled. Because you thought, hey, we're hanging around Jesus and we get a lot of good stuff. This is really great. And there were other things too. But at the heart of what he brings out is he says that you're just following me for what you can give. But then he says this in verse 27 of John 6. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. 
And this is the only food our souls were created to be satisfied in. Now, I mean, we all, I, I'm going to guess that most of us, for all of us, would agree with that. But I'm going to ask you, if you examine your life and you examine your joys and your frustrations, if you examine your sorrows and the things that made you happy, what were they centered around? What were they centered around? If you think of the joys for the future, what is it centered around? If we think of our nation, and we think of many of us have grown up with the idea of an American dream, right? We're going to live, and the longer we live, things will go better. We'll make good decisions. Our, our investments are only going to increase. The value of our home is going to increase. Our jobs will get promotions. Things will get better. We have a bright future for our children. And I think many of us, or many can look now at our nation and go, I don't know that that's true anymore. I don't know, maybe, but I can't be certain of it as at earlier times. I can't be certain that that's the case. My children may have only a future before them of being tested. They may have a future before them of hardship and persecution. I don't know that. We might know that. We hope for the best. But the idea here is this, is that there is a food, there is, there is something that we long for that's greater than whatever this world can or can give us. And he says it's a food that endures to eternal life. Endures into eternal life. The life with God to know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He says in verse 31, oh, They said to him, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, That was what they were saying was a sign. Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up. It's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who has given you the bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And it's not manna. It's not manna. It's not food. What is to say I, I live out the rest of my days here, and every day one of you can quit your job and come to me, and I'm going to give you food, I'm going to give you fish, I'm going to give you delicacies, I'm going to give you everything you want, you're going to have peace, Rome isn't going to rule over you anymore, and we're just going to be happy and flourish and all of that stuff. He's saying you've missed the point. You've missed it. And in the end, that isn't going to satisfy you. I've come to give you food that my Father has given, and I am gift. For the bread, that is that which comes down to heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They still didn't get it. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's where he told the woman at the well, you're going to come to this well, and you're going to get thirsty again. But come to me if you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water, so you don't have to come here to this well. You could always be satisfied. He wasn't talking about physical water, of course. There's something that you're looking for. It's, look, it's not just about a nice existence. It's not just about getting by. It's not about the earthly things that God can give. He says there's something greater that's being offered to you. And it's true for the, the people in Ecclesiastes. Yes, here to the woman in the well and to the crowds was the Messiah before their eyes. But they understood the God of the covenant again. The promises of God were not kept secret. They were not bound up in terms of their not knowing them. But they were bound up in terms of their understanding them. It was like a closed book. And so one says this. 
He's now, after quoting Psalm 73:25, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you and beside you I desire nothing on earth? He says this. Everything is unreal when placed beside this glorious treasure. Our position is not so much looking up to heaven from earth as looking down from heaven to earth. That isn't from our vantage point. And it is when we realize thus our rightful standing in heaven that we rise above the dying vanities of the earth. In other words, it is the knowledge of the treasure that we have in the promises of God and in Christ that should cause us to seek it with diligence and pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119, turn my eyes from looking at vanity. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. And the Christian who knows the vanity of these things of the world can at times still be tempted and caught up into the lures of sin. We can get caught up. We get tripped up all the time. The Christian doesn't stay there because God won't let them stay there. He'll make them miserable. So the greatest testimony of the reality of faith is this. Not whether I sin or don't sin because you sin. <laughs> the, the question is, is, am I comfortable with that sin? Can I live with it? Or does that sin bring to me a misery and a frustration and a discouragement and a shame that plagues my soul and makes me want relief and to walk faithfully with God? That's the desire. That's the reality. So we can turn to this vanity. We can get tripped up in the same things that we're warned about here. And we can love the world at times rather than loving Christ. But our, we're prompted internally to turn our eyes to, again to look at Christ. And it's crucial that we look not only away from vanity, but that we look to Christ. But even here we need God to awaken the soul. Have you ever had that kind of battle with sin? Have you ever had battled with sin like that? You know it's in. You know it's stupid. You know it's misery. You confess it, and then, and then you go on, you do it again, or you have that same temptation within your soul, and you cry out to God, and you say, give me, give me relief from this. Turn my heart from this vanity. Turn my heart from this sin. Cause me to love you completely. And we realize we who walk with Christ, that it's not of our own strength. Yes, the Spirit enables us, and yes, we must respond. But at the end of the day, we say with Paul, I labored more than all of them, but not me, the grace of God within me. It was the grace of God that did it. The grace of God that allowed me to not be sucked into this world, to not be sucked into this lie of the entertainment that parades before my eyes again and again. And, and I say that because that is the dominant thing that we battle in this world, this, in our culture now. This constant parading of what causes us and draws us to be passive and to be blindly influenced by the ideology and the thinking and the principalities of this world that want to shape our mind and our thinking and our affections to love what? Not to love Christ. And just as a side note here, and I want to give you a quote. So here is what we ask ourselves. Not that when, we, when we think about sanctification, we ask ourselves this question. Is what I'm doing or this relationship or whatever it might be, is it leading me more to Christ or away? Is it making Christ seem less interesting or more interesting? Is it making sin seem less tempting or more tempting? Is it making the truth of the gospel more real or a faded thing that I acknowledge in the background? But we need God to help us with this. And so Augustine famously said in his confessions, 
He said this, And man, being a part of thy creation, desires to praise thee. And the idea here is even is this, is that it's placed within the heart of man to worship. That part of being made in God's image. He says, And man being in part of thy creation desires to praise thee. Man who bears about with him mortality, the witness of sin within himself. But you movest us to delight in praising you, for you formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's the famous line. But then he goes on to say a little bit later, four chapters later. He says, oh, how shall I find rest in you? Who will send thee into my heart to inebriate it? In other words, to fill it. So that I may forget my woes and embrace thee, my only good. He says later, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. So speak that I may hear. Behold, Lord, the ears of my heart are before you. Open thou them and say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. And when I hear, may I run and lay hold of thee and hide not thy face from me. And so we need God's that's a reflection of. We need God to enlighten our eyes. Why did Paul keep praying for the churches to enlighten their eyes? I pray that God would give you understanding. I pray that God would give you understanding of his will. I pray that God would give you understanding of his love. I pray that God would give you understanding of the glory of Christ's inheritance in you. I want you to understand these things because when you understand them, then you will begin to live rightly. It's like the song... And I often have this sometimes in my head when I wake up. It goes like this. It says, in the morning when I rise, can you, what's the rest of it? Give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. And is that what we cry out for. That's what this should lead us to. And so lastly, here in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 to 12, he says, whatever has existed in verse 10 has already been named. The final cry he gives here, in frustration, one does not find, the one who does not find contentment resting humbly in God and under his sovereign hand, but questions him contemptuously about the circumstances that seem so set against the real desires of his heart. Have you ever been frustrated because God wasn't giving you what you wanted? Whatever exists has already been named, it's not known, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he, for there are many words which increase futility. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. What exists has already been named. That's the cry of frustration of one who has tasted the varied delicacies of the world and still finds it wanting, but doesn't turn to God. Doesn't turn to God. It is known what that man is, it says in verse 10. And he says that because there's nothing in him that enables him to rise above this station as man, indebted to God and living in God's world. You can bounce around as much as you want, but you can't change the realities. You can't change creature-creator distinction. You can't change the reality of sin. You can't escape death. You can't escape the futility. You can't make this world something that it is. And if you try, you're only going to end up in frustration is the idea. And then he goes on to say, man cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he where there are many words, many words increases futility. In other words, there's no amount of disputation and arguments that will change the situation. Argue as you will. 
And besides, we as men don't even know what's good for us anyway. Verse 12, who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life that are going to be spent like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? How can a man know what is best? We live in profound ignorance. You ever thought about that? We live in a profound ignorance. And that's a greatly comforting thought when the providences of God go contrary, it seems, to our earthly desires. I can think of myself, anyway, as being comforted by that and and you, is that that I don't know. Ignorance is actually a, a comforting place. It's a place of rest. Because I can trust at that point. Right? So... When we see here, he says that you don't know what is going to come after him. I mean, think about this. Can you tell me with certainty what's going to happen to you at 5 o'clock this afternoon? Where you're going to be? What you're going to do? Can you say that? That's your own life. You don't even know what's going to happen in 10 minutes. And certainly you don't know what's going to happen in every other life and how every other life relates to the things that are happening in each individual life, which is happening to your city, your town, your community, your country, and the world, and the building of the kingdom by Christ. You simply don't know. I have no idea. That's the idea here. It's really a, James reflects this a little bit when he says in James chapter 4, don't say I'm going to go to such and such a city and I'm going to do such and such a business and I'm going to make such and such a kind of profit. Rather, you go there and say, if the Lord wills. I don't know. I'm making my plan. Mind a man plans his way, but you know it's the Lord who brings about whatever he's going to bring about. I don't know. That's a good place to live. Hey, let's give it a shot. This is about resting in the sovereign hand of God. One said this, it's a hymn, an old hymn. It says, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, lead me by thine own hand and choose out the path for me. And though you choose my way, because I don't know what I'm going to choose, he says, I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God, and so shall I walk aright. In other words, I don't know what's best for me. I don't know these things, but God does. And so I say, God, you choose out my way by your providential hand. And so, if we'd have wrapped that up, kind of, or these, this big idea here. The problem with, with not living this way is that one, this world, even with all of its abundance, was never meant to provide the satisfaction our souls were made to crave. We were made to love God, not this world. And the more we love things in this world, the less we're going to be satisfied with them. Two, this life is to be enjoyed in the present, but lived in light of eternity. And that, again, is where Solomon's going to take us at the end, right? Enjoy these things. Your God keep his commandments, because he's going to bring every act to judgment, everything that is hidden, whether good or evil, is going to be exposed. In other words, there's going to be an accounting. So remember, enjoy them, but remember there's an accounting. Number three... Where he ends us with this is that God who made us rightfully and sovereignly rules over our lives. And if we can rest there, then we can learn what it means to be content. We can learn what it means to be content. And to realize that we just simply weren't made to be fully satisfied here. So listen to Romans or Isaiah 45. Drip down, O heavens, from above and let 
open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say to him, uh, say he has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? The Holy One of Israel is our maker. Ask him about the things to come, he says, and he'll tell you. In other words, who are we to quarrel with God? That he should do it one way rather than another. And this is many times that reality is used again and again. Job had to come face to face with that in Job 40. I put my hand over my mouth. You do whatever you want with my life, oh God. I'll shut up and listen rather than speaking. Jeremiah speaks of that. Jeremiah 18 in terms of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Romans 9 deals with that and says, Why does he save one and not save another? Who are you to ask the question? Is his response. It's because God is the creator. He's the maker of the end of the earth. He can do with one thing as he wants and another thing is with a, and do something different with another. He owes us no explanation. We can be offended by that or we can rejoice in that and trust him. And that's where this should lead us. So it's joyful to live under the providential hand of God. God's greater work in us is not to produce happiness but holiness. And happiness comes with holiness, but we have to have it in the right order. And so if we get that, then we don't fall into the trap that he warns us here in Ecclesiastes. Because we see these things not as our happiness. We see God as our happiness, and we'll gladly give them up for our greater good. And that's the overall point, which is holiness and to know him and to walk with him. And so God gives his wise providences to lead us always to Christ. And so that's what we remember in the table this morning as we come, that this God whom we have trusted, this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us this reminder so that we who grow weary, we who can be forgetful, we who can fall into a routine, are reminded together of these glorious truths of the new covenant that we are the people of God, that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that we are those who have been given promises, and we are those who have been assured of those promises through his death and his resurrection. So as you come to the table, examine your heart, yes, and see if there's areas of disobedience, areas of complaining and grumbling against God. See if there's those areas where you're looking for joy in something other than him. See if there's broken relationships that need to be mended, sin that needs to be confessed to God and to another. Come in that way, yes. But come as well remembering that as you confess your sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. And that as we come to the table, we are celebrating that forgiveness, that assurance that he has made an atonement. There is nothing else we can add. We simply say, as we noted last week, thank you. Thank you. And help me to walk in light of your grace. And so I'll give you a few moments to pray silently by yourself and then we'll take the elements together. Have granted to us grace. And not as a spontaneous reaction. Not as a whimsical decision but you granted us grace 
we who know you before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before you because we would be counted in Christ. We would be justified in Christ. We would be given life in Christ. We would be brought to share in the very life that you and the Son have shared from all eternity in closeness and joy and love and delight and beauty and happiness and holiness. And we get to share in that. We get to share in that. And this table is a reminder of that covenant promise. This table is a reminder that it's all ratified for us in Christ. We have nothing to add to it. We have nothing that can be lost of it. It is secured for us and our dear and beloved Savior. Remind us of these things. Teach us. Unfold to us the glories and the wonders of our salvation. Put away those things that challenge our love for you. Help us to renew our minds. Help us to make right decisions. And Lord, when we fail, bring us quickly back to forgiveness, to repentance, to faith and obedience for your name's sake and for our eternal joy. And strengthen us in these truths, even now as in obedience to your command and the desire of our heart. We remember your saving work at the table. In your name, Jesus. And so the words of the covenant are for us, as have been repeated.